and welcome to City Break Ideas, Episode 7. I'm going to take a little break between series, just finish the Bath series. It's a new series coming in a few weeks' time. And in between, I'm going to have a look at some City Break Ideas from various sources in this episode to include three suggestions from listeners. And to go through those, tell you what they recommend, tell you why, add a little bit of research on the places that they chose. And in a couple of cases, tell you a little bit more about the travel blogs that these people write, because they're interesting in their own right. But before I get to that, I thought I might just take a moment to remind you about some of the materials that have been produced in City Break's first two years. If you haven't been listening since the beginning, then just to remind you that there are seven cities now, each with their own series, quite comprehensive, all the history and culture, ideally, that you would need if you were going to make an informed visit to any of those places. So there's the Florence series, for example, our first. If you want to know something about the intrigues of the Medici family, and my goodness, there were some, or about the art, art and more art to be enjoyed in Florence, think Michelangelo and Donatello. Want some pointers to what there is to see in each of the three big galleries there, the Uffizi, the Accademia and the Bargello? And, of course, a tour around some of those marvellous churches and palazzos and piazzas. Then do have a listen to some of the Florence series. Our series two was on Munich. Completely different thing, although Munich and Florence are geographically not that far apart, really. But there you're looking at German Baroque, the Wittelsbach dynasty with their mad Ludwigs, arty eccentric Ludwig I and his mistress, the absolutely unique Lola Montez. Ludwig II, he of the fairy tale castle's fame and the Wagner obsession. If you listen to the Munich series, you'll get lots more art. The Blue Rider Expressionist movement, for example. Lots more history. Munich, I'm afraid, has a rather dark history in the World War II period. Although not without glimmers of light, I did make a point of focusing on some of the people who tried to stand up to Hitler. And of course, of course, there's an episode on Munich and its role as world capital of beer. And lastly, for today at least, can I just point you also towards our St. Petersburg series. Fantastic emperors and empresses, fabulous palaces, lovely Baroque architecture all along those beautiful canals. Again, loads of art. The Hermitage, of course, but also the Russian Museum, which I thought equally splendid and a bit more Russian, really. There are episodes which delve into the Soviet period, into music and ballet and Tolstoy. There's even one episode called Finding Literature in Leningrad, a little tour through Soviet literature, using some examples written by people with close links to Leningrad, as it was called in those days. OK, so just before we move on, just a reminder then that it's very nice to hear from listeners. So if you want to contact us through the website or send an email, there'll be details at the end of this episode telling you how to do that. And if you have enjoyed one or more of the series, do please consider telling a friend, if you have an erudite traveller friend, who would like to be both entertained and informed about the places they're planning to visit, and you think they'd enjoy City Breaks, do give us a mention. OK, so today's episode then. I'm going to start with what I fondly call one of my specials, so a little something for people who are interested in City Breaks. And this month, I'm going to base it on something I read on Twitter, which was a list of the best cities for art and culture. I think they had some sort of vote and there were 25 chosen. 
and caught my eye because art and culture and cities is what City Breaks is all about, really. Of course, I had a look first to see which of my, in inverted commas, cities were on the list. And yes, Florence and Paris were there, but Seville and St. Petersburg and Munich weren't. And then, of course, I had another look to see what was on there that I haven't covered that was of interest. So I'm going to pick out just four that they mentioned and start with lovely Vienna. Absolutely, of course, a city for anybody interested in classical music, the city which nurtured the talents of Haydn and Mozart and Beethoven and Brahms and Mahler. Most of those came to Vienna, I think, because of the music, but we mustn't forget the local boys, Schubert and Strauss, who were both born there. Also, of course, a wonderful city for art, not least because of the Kunsthistorisches Museum, which is the big national gallery, but also for the Vienna Secession Movement, avant-garde in 1897, still enjoyed today, so where you can see paintings by artists like Klimt. I was quite shocked to read, because I do know Vienna quite well, that there are over a hundred museums in the city. Who knew? So if museums are your thing, good place to go. But of course, there's also the wonderful Staatsoper, State Opera House, and the theatres. Another city which caught my eye on this list, for people who enjoy art and culture when they go on city breaks, was Istanbul. I do like to think that one day there will be a City Breaks Istanbul series. And the description in the article of the city as being the entry point into Europe for the Silk Road. That trade route that extended all the way east as far as the Korean Peninsula. And one of the reasons why Istanbul then is a city that feels exotic. As the entry in this particular list pointed out, here's a city where you can see a Roman aqueduct. Here a call to prayer emanating from a mosque, which dates from the time of the Ottoman Empire. And visit a building like the Hagia Sophia, which has been in its time a cathedral and a museum and a mosque. Moving outside Europe, I was struck by the entry on Washington, which was described as delivering a crash course in American history and culture. Talked about all the art and culture and science that you can see just in all the museums lining the mall. Then there was the enticing idea of spending a Friday evening in the summer in the National Gallery Sculpture Garden, where you can picnic while listening to live jazz. And again, so many more museums, everything from the National Portrait Gallery to the National Museum of African American History and Culture, quite newly opened last year, I think. And lastly from this list, somewhere even further away, at least if you're starting from the UK, as I am, and that's Kyoto in Japan. Nicknamed, the article helpfully told me, the City of 10,000 Shrines. Although, in fact, it did go on to point out that the number 1,600 is probably more accurate. And there was a reference to all those things that make Kyoto sound such an enticing place to visit. Zen gardens, temples, shrines, 17 UNESCO World Heritage Sites, and what they described as the vermilion gates of Fushimi Inari Taisha, and the shimmering golden pavilion of Kinkaku-ji. Don't those sounds just make you want to set off? OK, so moving on to listener ideas. I've got three for you this week, and the first one comes from somebody on Twitter whose handle is at Malmo190. Malmo, M-A-L-M-O, and then the figures 190. And their suggestion is Madrid. Why? Because, they wrote, it's an amazing city 
for the food, the shopping, the easy transport, the architecture. So I went off to have a look, Madrid not being somewhere I visited yet, although again, City Breaks Madrid does have a bit of a ring to it. And on one of the main tourist websites, I found the following introduction. Madrid, it said, is a city of elegant boulevards and expansive manicured parks, such as the Buen Retiro. It's renowned for its rich repositories of European art, the Prado Museum's works by Goya, Velázquez and other Spanish masters. And the heart of old Habsburg Madrid is the portico-lined Plaza Mayor, with nearby the Baroque Royal Palace and Armoury. Yep, definitely sounds enticing. I typed into Google, what should I do on a day in Madrid? And back came the answer with suggestions like, well, definitely go to the Prado. And please be aware that in Madrid, the calamari sandwiches are amazing. There's the oldest restaurant in the world called the Sobrino di Botan. I don't know whether other cities would claim the same for some of their restaurants, but anyway, and one that I think probably is not to be disputed, and that's the fact that in Madrid you will find the biggest Zara in the world. Okay, so for me, I think the attraction would be the three blockbuster art museums, the Prado, the Reina Sofia and the Tyson Bonamisa. And since this is a passing reference to Madrid rather than a proper episode on it, I'm going to just pick out two very famous paintings which you can see in that city. The first one's at the Prado, and it's the Velasquez painting Las Meninas, said to be the only painting which got a chapter all to itself in a famous history of art book on Spanish painting. And a sentence I found which intrigued me was the following one. The longer one looks at the 1656 painting Las Meninas, the more questions arise. In fact, the follow-up sentence was intriguing too. Scholars have been analysing the painting for over three centuries and still have not settled on its meaning. So, if you don't know the painting, you must be wondering by now what it depicts that could be so intriguing. And the answer is, it's a picture of some of the royal family. In the foreground are some of the royal children who have just shipped up to an artist studio to have their picture painted and who have with them an assortment of other people including Las Meninas, which means something like ladies-in-waiting, and a dwarf, and a nun, and a large mastiff dog. And to add to the confusion, there's a mirror behind them, in which the king and the queen are reflected. If you are intrigued as to all the very many meanings that could be hidden in that, I direct you to an art history book to find out. The second painting I chose is the one that perhaps is more famous, Guernica, Picasso's 1937 painting, which you can see today at the Reina Sofia Art Gallery, which many art critics have said is the most moving, powerful anti-war painting from the whole of painting history. Guernica is a town in the Basque Country which was badly bombed by German warplanes on the orders of General Franco himself. Since most of the men from the town were away fighting, this being the Spanish Civil War, the victims were mainly women and children. It's a massive painting, something like 12 feet by 25 feet, painted in grey and black and white, portraying the suffering of the people and the animals in the chaos that ensued after the bombing. And its subject matter is grim. A gored horse, an injured bull, screaming women, dismembered bodies, flames. As for picking out the main historic buildings in Madrid, the Royal Palace would be a must-see. 
18th century number, built on the site of an old Moorish castle, with guards' rooms and a hall of mirrors and royal apartments and lots of artwork. Velasquez, Goya, Rubens and Caravaggio all have paintings there. The main square, the Plaza Mayor, is seen as a symbol of Madrid, vast rectangular square with a statue of Felipe III in the middle, a place still used for all sorts of public events like bullfights and processions and festivals, a place with a gruesome history where executions were carried out and inquisition trials, and a square surrounded by arcades full of traditional shops and bars and restaurants. And very briefly, two more places in the city you may wish to visit, the Oasis of Peace in the heart of Madrid, the lovely Buen Retiro Park, dating from the 17th century, lovely rose garden, a crystal palace, lots of open-air cafes, a place to bask in the sun or relax in the shade. And finally, I noticed with football fans in mind that many of the guidebooks and websites that I had a quick look at pointed you to one place, and that was the shrine, in inverted commas, which is the stadium of the football team Real Madrid where you can visit the museum and look at their trophies, go on a tour which will take you to the top of the stadium for a marvellous view of the pitch, or take you into the presidential box, even into the locker room, and you can have your photograph taken with montages of famous players. A perfect extra visit for a group which contains not just culture vultures, but also football fans. Not that you can't be both at once, of course. OK, so... Thank you to Malmo190 for that idea, and on to another listener whose Twitter handle is at the borderless. All one word, of course, capital T and capital B. And at the borderless, who turn out to be two people, wrote and said, We both love Paris in the summer for a weekend break. They visit regularly, they tell me, and they say they have lots of what they rather sadly call pre COVID memories from Paris. For example, shopping on the Champs-Élysées, making memories at the Eiffel Tower, the Louvre, the Moulin Rouge, and partying at Le Chinois. Now, I must confess I didn't know what Le Chinois was, so I went to Googling to discover that it's a must-visit bar, gig venue, club. Possibly not somewhere to visit in current Covid times, because their website tells me that, quote, people squeeze in from all four corners of the capital to dance, listen to live music, and party all night long, but one perhaps to remember when better times arrive. Paris, I thought, that has been suggested by listeners before, of course, and there's also the 24-episode-long City Break series on Paris. So what can I add? Well, it wasn't long until I found a Condé Nast article entitled The 25 Most Beautiful Areas in Paris, and I thought, well, there must be something there that we can add. The introduction opens with the following words. Everyone knows Paris as the place that inspired Hemingway and Balzac, Impressionist paintings and love songs. But when you finally visit Paris for yourself and see the cobblestone streets of Saint-Germain and backlit silhouette of Notre-Dame, its charm transcends cliché. With gilded history reflected across so many arrondissements in Paris, here are 25 of the most beautiful places in the city. Okay, so lots of the 25 were somewhat predictable, although nonetheless lovely for that. So there were the big hitters like Notre Dame and the Arc de Triomphe and the Tuileries. 
there were a few of those places that you just pass and suddenly realise how lovely they are. Banks of the Seine, for example. Lots of the bridges, but the one they picked out was the Pont Alexandre III, so the Alexander III Bridge. That lovely Franco-Russian construction, dating from the end of the 19th century, erected as a tribute to the friendship between France and Russia, in memory of the Russian Tsar Alexander III, and where the first stone, the foundation stone, was laid by his son, Emperor Nicholas II, who turned out, of course, to be the very last emperor of Russia. Also on the list were some beautiful places which it's quite easy to forget. The Orangerie Museum, for example, in the Tuileries Gardens, where you can linger over those gorgeous, massive lily paintings by Monet. Or the Sainte-Chapelle, the medieval chapel on Ile de la Cité, where you will see what surely must be the most beautiful and extensive stained-glass windows ever, ever, ever. But on the list were also two or three things that I hadn't thought of, which I thought I might just give a brief mention to here. The first one you may know is the Fondation Louis Vuitton, the spectacular new contemporary art museum, opened in, I think it was 2014, where the building, which is a huge sailboat-shaped affair, is at least as masterful as all the things inside it. And then there were two streets mentioned particularly. One is called La Butte aux Cailles, Kai, C-A-I-L-L-E-S, is the French for quail. No idea why the road is called that. But it is described in the article as, quote, one of the world's best cities for street art. Its leafy alleyways turned canvases are splashed with colourful graffiti and witty stencil pin-ups. And the second little road is something called the Rue Crémieux, C-R-E-M-I-E-U-X, described as, possibly the most charming street in the whole of Paris. It's in the 12th arrondissement, and you get the flavour a little bit from this sentence. Beware the fashion influencers and Instagram celebs trying to take advantage of those pastel-coloured backdrops. So there you are, if you've been to Paris lots of times, do consider going past one or more of those things. As well, of course, as enjoying all those other things that we know are there, but which we don't visit every time. And on then lastly to this week's third listener, at Cindy Moore, C-I-N-D-Y-M-O-O-R-E, who, when asked what her favourite city break idea would be, wrote back, there are so many great cities. But forced to pick one out, she plumped for Dublin, which I think she'd relatively recently visited, and which she's just written about quite extensively on her blog. She picked out particularly the Temple Bar District, described by her as, quote, such a fun, lively area with shops and cafes and pubs. The Dubliners are so friendly. And sure enough, if you go onto her blog and find the Dublin extract, there is some reference to the culture, Trinity College, for example, Christchurch Cathedral, Dublin Castle. But there's a lot more reference to what a lovely time she had in the Temple Bar area, the Bohemian district of the city, if you like. Shops, art, entertainment, cafes, pubs. Cindy tells us that there's all sorts of music available there. Live Irish folk music, for example. But lots of other sorts too. And that visitors and locals like to enjoy the area for something. I'm afraid she's put this in Gaelic, so I'm going to have a go. With apologies to anybody who knows what a massacre I'm making of the pronunciation. You go to Temple Bar, say the Irish, for Seol Agus Craig 
which apparently is the Irish for music and fun. Cindy's suggestion is that if you don't like throngs of people, perhaps you'd consider going in the daytime rather than in the evening. And you will find that the live music starts about mid-afternoon, so you can catch some of that without going in the evening, when you might find that it is, quote, boisterously overcrowded. Her blog is quite good on pubs and restaurants in the area. She names a few, gives you some idea of the menus in each, which one's an oasis of calm, which one has specialities, where would you go, for example, oysters or vegan food, or a particularly impressive selection of whiskies, and what type of music might you expect to find in each of them. Coming back to Cindy's blog in a minute, but just before that, I had a little look at Dublin myself in the guidebooks, not least because it was the trip I had to cancel when Covid first struck, so I'm very intrigued by it, and it's definitely on my go-to list as soon as travel becomes a bit more possible. So look forward one day to City Breaks Dublin. Anyway, I asked Google what Dublin was famous for, and they came up with a suggestion for a lovely day in the city, and the advice was as follows. Start on Grafton Street, make sure you see Trinity College Dublin, perhaps enjoy a pint at the Guinness Storehouse. I think that's a museum dedicated to the production of Ireland's most revered beverage. And there were a couple of other suggestions for museums. If you want to learn about the Bogmen, so the ancient history of Ireland, then go to the National Museum of Ireland. If you want more recent 19th and 20th century history, then they have turned Kilmainham Jail, which played its part in some of the darker stories from that era, into a museum and a place of memory. And for something a bit lighter to end the day, two suggestions. Why not watch an Ireland game at Croke Park Stadium? And why not go to eat at Delahunt? Which, when I looked it up, proved to be a cosy little restored tavern, long bar, traditional Irish food, and what they said on the website, what they described as vintage accents. And who doesn't love an Irish accent? Okay, looking a little further, I looked up one or two things that I had been planning to go and see. One, the Book of Kells at Trinity College Dublin's Old Library, described on the website where I checked as possibly Ireland's most important artefact. It's a 9th century manuscript of the Four Gospels. Beautiful calligraphy, those wonderful jewel-like colours. 34 folios, no less, all of vellum, i.e. calfskin. And where the pigments used were described as red lead, lapis lazuli and copper. And I think any mention of Dublin, however brief, has to make reference to its literary connections. Think Yeats and Seamus Heaney and James Joyce. And there are plenty of literary museums to do justice to them. And actually, I would say, if you're going to read one work of fiction before you go to Dublin, I would recommend James Joyce's short story collection, The Dubliners. It's not Dublin today, obviously, but it is Dublin as it was in the early 20th century, described in a way that makes it clear that there really was no other place like it. Okay, back to Cindy's website, because I did want to mention that there are other travel posts on there. There was a good one on the Bridge of Size in Venice, for example, as well as a whole lot of other things, family stories, recipes, really all sorts. But I was struck particularly by something that she's been working on quite recently, which was links to four sets of ghost stories from different cities. The cities being London, Venice, 
Dublin and Edinburgh. Each post takes you through the well-known ghost stories from that city and intriguingly even adds one or two of her own experiences. So as a for instance, the London Ghost Stories post, which went up on October the 25th, 2020, so bang up to date at the time of recording, offered, quote, five stories from London's spooky side. And it went through various sites, telling you the ghost stories associated with them. So from the Tower of London, for example, Cindy relates the story of the ghosts of the two princes, the sons of Edward IV, believed to have been murdered in the Tower in 1483. She tells us the story of the ghost of Anne Boleyn, beheaded there, of course, by Henry VIII in 1536, and a story that's less well-known, entitled The White Woman in the Castle Keep. She tells you the stories, where they originated from, and what is said to happen even today, in terms of ghostly happenings. Then she moved on to Buckingham Palace, two more ghost stories from there, and Westminster Abbey, another two, and to the East End of London, where she retells the Jack the Ripper story, and finally a visit to London's most haunted house. If you want to find out where it is, and who's said to be a ghost there, then you'll have to look at the website. I can tell you there is quite a list of things connected to it, and the paragraphs have headings like The Shapeless Creature and A Young Man Goes Mad. So do have a look. If you want to go city hopping with ghost stories, then you can look at Cindy's other posts on Venice. Stories there include The House That Kills, The Ghost of the Venice Bell Ringer, and The Bride Ghost of Venice. Then there's Dublin, Bram Stoker references, something about Dublin Castle, a story known as The Green Lady. And finally there's Edinburgh, where there are ghost stories from Greyfriars Kirkyard. Cindy describes two of these stories as being, quote, on opposite ends of the scary spectrum, and those are Greyfriars Bobby and Bloody Mackenzie. But there's also something called the Haunted Tollbooth Tavern, and the story of the ghost of little Annie who died in the plague, and, finally, the ghost of the headless drummer boy believed to frequent Edinburgh Castle to this day. So, for a slightly different sort of city break tour, do have a look. All of those stories and a whole lot more to be found then at www.cindygoesbeyond.com And that then brings me towards the end of this week's episode. Just like to finish by saying how nice it would be to have a little bit more feedback from listeners. If you've enjoyed this podcast or indeed any other, do feel free to go onto the website and tell us that. Or better still, to leave a positive review on, for example, iTunes. That would help other people find us, give more people the pleasure, at least I hope so, of listening to City Breaks, and perhaps then more people would write in and give us new ideas, which would be great. If you have a City Break idea, it could be something quite short, just the name of the city that you would recommend, and perhaps two or three sentences as to why, or it could be something much longer, a reference to your travel blog, for example, where you've written about the cities that you've visited. Either way, let us know and we'd be thrilled to feature you on a future City Breaks Ideas episode. And the three ways to get in touch then are to go onto the blog on the website www.citybreakspodcast.co.uk Click on blog at the top and you can leave a message or you can send us an email 
citybreaks at citybreakspodcast.co.uk or you can find us on Twitter at citybreakscast. So that's got an S in the middle, City Breaks. All contributions looked forward to and most welcome indeed. Thank you. For the moment then, have a good week. There will be another City Breaks Ideas episode next week. And then I think there's going to be a little bit of a change for a few weeks. I'll tell you about that in due course. For the moment then, thanks very much and goodbye. <laughs>